My name is Albert. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Don, for asking me to speak. Um, I'll out myself around my arrogance that I've led this meeting a couple of times before and I've led lots of OA meetings over the years and on the way over here I thought, I got it, this will be no problem. And I, I walked through the door absolutely terrified to speak. Um, and standing here today, it's interesting because I'm triggered in all kinds of ways and my biggest, or one of my biggest triggers at least, is, is the fear of being seen. Um, and to stand up here and to carry myself with a sense of dignity and pride is, is one of the miracles that I've experienced in this program. Um, I know a lot of you here have heard my story. I'm going to share for the newcomer who, who's um, listening, hopefully, on the podcast. And hopefully something that I say will resonate with somebody. And uh, if it doesn't, um, keep coming back. Um, I came into the rooms in 2008. I was not quite 100 pounds heavier than I am now, but my heaviest weight was closer to 350 pounds. Um, I am probably 230 pounds. Um, I don't always feel comfortable in my pants, but I have never felt more comfortable in my own skin. Um, when I came into the rooms, I was dying of loneliness and compulsive overeating was one of the ways that I, I numbed through the pain of loneliness. Um, we can start, I suppose, um, at the very beginning. Um, I'm not going to say that I was born a compulsive overeater, but at a very young age, I found food to be very comforting. I, um, I had three brothers, and it seemed like we were always in competition for who could get to the food quicker. Like My mom only made a certain amount of food, and we all wanted to claim it. Um, as a young kid, I'd hide food. I would... Um, raid the refrigerator. The moment my mom went shopping, I'd go through the refrigerator and start hiding it. I was always a chubby little boy. I have a brother who's a year younger than me. And I think one of the stories of trying to make sense around this disease was that as a child, if my mom had to decide between my brother and me to pick up and comfort when we were scared or lonely or whatever, that she'd probably turn to my younger brother. And I was the one that got the food. So he got held, I got the food. And I think that that is pretty much the way that it went. Um, as I got older, I think I was able to hide my compulsive overeating. I played sports in high school. I was uh, a water polo player, and at times I was in the water for about six hours a day. Uh, which pretty much meant I can eat anything that I wanted and and still be a little, you know, a little overweight and wonder why am I not losing any weight? I'm in the water all the time. Um, and it was because I was binging. I couldn't stop binging. And when I came into this program, I'd hear people say they have 20 years or 10 years or anything over one year. I didn't want to hear it because I thought, 
they are not compulsive overeaters because I do not see how it's possible to get a year under my belt, let alone anything more than that. So having over seven years of uh, continuous recovery, as I define my abstinence, um, I can say that this is an absolute miracle that I did not believe it was possible to not binge. I could not stop. Um, So, moving a little forward, I was trying to figure out my crazy. And in in college, I studied psychology. I went on to get a master's and a doctorate in an area of psychology. And at that point, I was hitting my bottom. Um, I had gone to therapist. I had read just about everything that I thought one could read at the time and absolutely nothing was helping me. I wasn't able to stop my compulsion. Um, I worked in a business that um, ran 24-7, 365 days a year and I can go from one client site to another and binge. All of my food was free. And I was at the time on the Atkins diet thinking I should be able to lose weight doing this. And I was eating like three prime rib dinners a day and wondering why I'm not losing any weight. I was taking in about 8,000 calories of meat. (laughs) It was pretty bad. Um, I don't want to get too far into my story. But I'll say that there came a point in my life where I had completely lost all hope. And the happiest day of my life was the day that I decided to kill myself. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I genuinely had this feeling that I have never experienced in my life. It was a complete and total ability to let go of any fear or any anxiety about what the future held because I knew that that Monday... I was going to end my suffering. And my suffering was fairly bad. It's not unlike most of the stories that I've heard in the rooms. The loneliness would hurt so bad that I would binge until the pain numbed the the pain in my head. And when that didn't work, I would cut myself. And when cutting didn't work, I would knock myself out with drugs and alcohol. I hit a point where nothing worked. And... I believed myself to be completely and totally unlovable and so broken that no one would be able to fix me. Um, So it came the day that I prayed to God and I prayed for years to give me the courage to end my suffering. And God did. He gave me that courage. And I got what I needed and I, in my way, in my own way, said my goodbyes to my family went out to Las Vegas to be with my um, only friend at the time uh, and his family and I was sitting on his couch on Saturday night and my phone rang from across the room and I got up to pick it up before it woke up his kids and it was my brother and my brother said I just asked Adrian to marry me will you be my best man and I said yes and stood up that whole night crying and trying to figure out how the hell I was going to go through with my plan. Um, I couldn't go through with that. I came home and tried to figure out how the hell I was going to make it to the wedding. 
So over the next few months, um, I tried figuring it out myself. I thankfully found a therapist and the therapist kept telling me to come to Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? I don't have a problem with food. And at the time I was probably pushing 330, 340. And I went on a diet and it was 500 calories a day and I was giving myself these injections and the weight was coming off. And after a month, I, I had come down about 40 pounds and I said to my therapist, I, I, I look good, I look good. She said, Albert, you look like shit. Your, <laughs> she said, your skin is gray, you look horrible. Uh, go to a meeting. And I didn't, I didn't go. Um, a couple weeks passed and I put on half of the weight that I had taken off. And she said, there's a meeting down the street on Robertson. Go to that meeting. And I said, okay, I'll go. And she says, great, call me after. And I'm like, shit, now I have to go to this meeting. Um, I went to the meeting and I heard someone tell my story. And, and everything changed from that point on. From that point on, I began to come to meetings, almost two to three meetings a day for I think the first probably three years in the rooms. Um, I like to say that um, I didn't kill myself for my brother. I came to program for my therapist. I got abstinent for my first sponsor. On October 25th, when my brother got married, is the day that I started to count my abstinence because that was the day that I had to work this program for me. And that was in October of... I, 2008, I think. That gives me seven years in 2008. Um, I don't work this program perfectly. I have a sponsor. I am a sponsor. I like to say that I don't work the steps in OA, uh, that the steps work me. Um, and what does that mean? That means I read my step work to my sponsor, but I don't do this work like an academic. I've done the steps in other programs like an academic. Um, I just went through my workbooks or the questions and, and, and what came out came out. In these rooms, because I've allowed the steps to really work me, um, I've been able to really get to a level of vulnerability and depth that I haven't been able to achieve by just writing down answers to questions. So I do like to really, really get into the work in, in this program. And right now I am on a step nine and I've been on a step nine forever being as gentle and as loving to myself. And I think that that is the, the we, we begin working step nine the day that we walk into the rooms because for a lot of us, or at least for me, um, that's the day that I stopped abusing myself so badly. Um, I believe that there's, for me at least, there's only one way to work a program, to be rigorously honest and as rigorously gentle and loving and compassionate and self-forgiving. Um, this isn't a black and white program for me. Um, I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about my abstinence um, because it's not a black and white abstinence. When I came in, um, 
my sponsor said, eat three meals a day and nothing in between. And I said, well, nutritionists say you're supposed to eat five or six meals a day. And he says, how's that working out for you? (laughs) And I decided to do a three meals a day with nothing in between abstinence. And I heard someone say, a meal is anything that fits on a plate. And I did that. And you'd be surprised what you can fit on a plate and call abstinent. Um, but I did that. And I think what happened was uh, my body started to acclimate to a consistent routine. And despite the meals being kind of big, my body was at least used to getting food three times a day. Whereas before, it didn't know if it was going to get 10,000 calories or 1,000 calories um, or 500 calories, my body was getting used to being loved consistently. And I'd have to say if anything, and I hopefully I'll remember to make this point, but I'll continue defining my abstinence. So today, um, those meals had gotten smaller and I added one snack and the meals got smaller and I added another snack. So I ate three meals a day and two optional snacks today. There are very defined rules around what a meal is and what a snack is because a snack can turn into a meal really easy. Um, I see a nutritionist and a, a trainer, a personal trainer. Um, I get on a scale and I tell her a poker face. I don't want to know, like poker face. Just tell me, is it going up? Is it going down? I don't need to know what that number is. When she told me I hit my goal, I hit my goal for about five minutes and then I put on probably 10 or 15 pounds. I have no idea. Maybe it's nothing. Um, But I want to define my worthiness and my being lovable by the size of my clothes and my weight. And when I hit that number and didn't have the relationship that I wanted or the job that I wanted, I thought I can't be this number because this number is supposed to be the thing that fixes it. And it's much easier for me to concentrate on what I'm eating and what I weigh than it is to look at the the more serious issue, which is believing that I'm not deserving of the life and the relationship that I really want. And that is still something that I struggle with. I work other programs around those issues. But I have come to this point, especially in the last couple of months, that I've been able to allow myself the amazing things that come with recovery. And it it is, for me, it is the strangest thing to have miracles right in front of you and to dismiss them and walk away. And... I'm beginning to acknowledge more and more on deeper and deeper levels that the subtlety of my disease, that I am not enough, pops up in every aspect of my life. Um, And I found that going back to the idea of three consistent meals a day, I, I understand today that I didn't get the consistent love and attention that I wanted as a child Um, and not because my parents are flawed I love my parents 
They were just very busy with other issues. And I used to talk about them with a little more resentment, and I don't have that resentment today. Um, but I do understand that my experience as a child, that I experienced, I call it um, slot machine parenting, that I'd get this positive reinforcement on a schedule that I couldn't predict, or there was nothing that I can do that could predict the attention that I wanted. So I would behave a certain way and I would get attention and that got me used to the kind of attention that, or the kind of reinforcement that I think gamblers feel. And I treated my food plan the same way. I would have a few crappy meals here and there and then one good one and my food was not consistent. And I found that by loving myself in the smallest, consistent ways, I've been able to change my life in ways that I, I that are just beyond my expectations. Um, I like to say that step two, I have not been restored to sanity. I've been restored to insanity because this is fucking crazy that my life looks like this way. I did not come into these rooms expecting my life to look this good. And I take that back. My life, I wasn't expecting to feel this good because my life has looked a lot better at times and I felt miserable. I, in my wildest dreams, did not know that I could feel this good. Um, and it's amazing what happens when I've recognized my trauma and I'm also starting to honor that the transformation that I've been able to achieve in the rooms um, has allowed me to experience everything in a different way. Um, I don't operate from a wounded child's perspective. I don't operate from the victim's perspective. I don't operate from a survivor's perspective or a fighter's perspective. My goal since really connecting with a higher power, and I'll talk about my higher power in a second, um, is learning to really embody the grace of God. That to connect with myself in a loving way and then share myself with others is, is what, I've, what I've come to um, believe recovery is really about. Recovery is not, for me, about getting thinner or making more money or being in a better relationship. It's learning to be present, safe, to feel a sense of connection and belonging, to feel comfortable in my own skin, to challenge myself to grow, not so that I can be loved or get things, but to contribute to the things that I believe in uh, and to have a, a sense of meaning and purpose in my life. And that's what recovery has given me. Um, and in the last five minutes, I'll just say quickly um, that my higher power, for anyone who struggles with the concept of a, of a higher power, my higher power has changed over the years. And I grew up um, in a religious home. The, 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 my religion didn't, it didn't stick. I never believed that there wasn't a God. I believed that there was a God that just didn't care about me. 
um, I felt unseen by my God the way that I felt unseen by um, my parents. And I think that that model didn't help me. So over the years, my higher power has evolved. Um, but in the last couple of years, and I don't know if I've shared this here before, but in the last couple of years, my higher power has been this metaphor. And I'll tell you the short story. I was watching a video on online and about NASA pointing the Hubble telescope at an area of sky no bigger than a grain of sand stretched out at arm's length. So this tiny area of sky somewhere near the Big Dipper. And they pointed the telescope at this patch of sky for 10 days. And some scientists said there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And um, time dedicated on the telescope is really expensive and it's really, it's valuable. And people were frustrated. And after 10 days, what had come to light, um, photons that had been traveling 60 million light years, had come into the sensors in the in the telescope, revealing 2,500 galaxies, each containing millions of stars. And that was my higher power, my metaphor for my higher power. My higher power is the tiniest thing inside of me where I believe there's no compassion, there's no love, there's no worthiness, um, that given a little bit of time and patience that what's come to light is really more than anything that I've ever could have imagined. Um, and what's allowed me to really, really take that in is I have seen miracles happen for other people in these rooms that seem almost impossible. I've seen people transform in ways that I just, to see it, it's, it's, it can't be explained outside of the realm of, of God for me. I've seen God in other people. I've experienced at times God in operating in myself in these deeply profound ways. Uh, and despite my attempts to constantly dismiss what I think is a miracle in me, um, somehow I, I continue to grow and I'm able to give in, in bigger and more meaningful ways to the people that I love and to the causes that I care about. And that is uh, for someone like me who has just lived a life in the most selfish ways um, that today I'm able to look at my stuff and really work on it. And, you know, to a certain I'm not perfect. I have a lot of issues that I'm working on and sometimes those issues run over other people. Um, but my in my way, in my way of working my ninth step, that my living amends is an attempt to not repeat the things that I used to do. And despite my best efforts, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Um, but I know what I need to work on. And on a, on a regular basis, I am turning my issues over to my higher power and praying that what continues to be revealed is a man beyond my hopes and I've already exceeded those but I'm, I'm still on, on this path and and yeah with that I, I got like a minute and I'll just say if you're new keep coming back um, 
this program is an absolute miracle and if you're if you've been around for a while I thank you for your vulnerability and for all that the people and the stories um, and the support that I've got in my life you know my life is drastically different because of all of you um, with that thank you for letting me share This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not of those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay. Questions? Thank you so much for inviting me How do you differentiate between if you're coming from a place of not enoughness or if you're coming from a place of passion and goal and drive? How do I differentiate between not enoughness and if I'm being driven by my passion? Um, in the last couple of months I've been constantly running this question through my mind around what is having the thought so if I'm compelled to do something um, I'm questioning what is having the thought not am I having this thought but something is having this thought and I feel I embody my, my behavior and my thoughts will reflect what I am embodying in any given moment. So if I am triggered by my trauma, the thought might be, order pizza and hang out with your brother because I have an abstinence that allows me to not eat pizza alone. But that thought does not come from a more loving place in me. That thought comes from my trauma. And I'm recognizing that when my thoughts or behavior are things that are not loving, it's because I am in the moment embodying a persona that is, I think, born of my trauma. And I've been doing a lot of writing around that because I know that through working the steps, through seeing a therapist, through talking with fellows, I have a very clear picture of what my story is around my trauma. Um, I don't have a clear picture of the man that I'm becoming and I've been writing a lot more on what it means to be a child of God and a man of faith Um, and I'm recognizing that my loving thoughts will always come from embodying a man of faith than embodying the victim Um, thanks for your share you mentioned that when you got to your number, you know, you didn't have a job, you didn't have a relationship. How did you deal with the frustration or anger, whatever it was that came up around that? And how long did it take? I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, for me, if I if I truly was in a place of embodying 
a man of faith and the grace of God that I wouldn't get in my own way to blocking the opportunities for romance or for um, for career opportunities that for me today there, I'm also very conscious of how I like to hide behind accomplishments and things so I like to believe that um, because I have these things that look at me I'm so good um, and the fear is that you're not going to see me and, and over the years for me those those accomplishments the things that I hide behind um, I always sabotage because while I might have some pride in my accomplishments it's not me and I am learning to allow people to really connect with me and to love me and to pursue work that is was that is in complete alignment with who I am so that I can feel a sense of pride about who I am so in the work that I'm doing around that I'm, I'm just coming to this place of recognizing that I really deserve more in my life because, not because because I just deserve more but because I work hard and I'm not asking for anything that I'm not willing to work for so I hope that answered the question <laughs> thanks yes yep Okay, so specifically my, my, my nine step work in that having done a nine, nine steps in other rooms, I have gone and made direct amends to people, um, which sort of fall flat. And I started with my family. And it, they fall flat in that I could not apologize enough for the things that I've done to people in my life. I, there, there isn't a, hey, remember that time I did this to you? I'm really sorry about that because it really isn't a one thing that the people who have loved me in my life have endured abuse years of my passive aggressive and sometimes outwardly aggressive abuse and anger and that the hate that I had for myself was projected on the people that I loved most in my life um, and the way that I work and amends around that is to be rigorously honest so that it doesn't happen again and the goal is that I for me to make a living amends to people that when I am ready to cut someone out of my life that I have a conversation with them first about the issues that are triggering me or hurting me um, and again I don't do it perfectly when when my when my trauma gets hit I, I turn in I turn into a different person I'm literally a different person um, and I hurt and push people away um, so the way that I work my ninth step is really to not repeat those things because they are hurting me more than anyone else my fear is to love someone 
that I, it's my fear is that I'm going to love someone and I don't want to hurt them, so I don't allow myself to love anybody. And this is why food is is the perfect alternative to a relationship because I'm not going to hurt food, and um, and it is the thing that I, for me at least, um, you know, a ninth step isn't so much about making amends. I, I believe that the ninth step is really about. Um, it is an amends, but the the amends is is always on myself. Like I I can't say I'm sorry to someone for the sake of of saying I'm sorry. I have to actually feel sorry, and and I'm only really sorry when I'm done acting out in those ways. So it's kind of the way. I know it sounds kind of vague, but it it's something that it's always at the at the forefront of my of my mind, um, especially in terms of relationships. Thank you very much. Um, you talked about God and the telescope and the grain of sand. Mm-hmm. How do you incorporate incorporate that on a day to day basis for you? I mean, do you visualize the telescope? I I um, how do you find God when you need it? When I'm struggling, I concentrate on. I concentrate. I go into a meditative state, and I do do this regularly. I'll go into uh, meditation, even if it's just a deep breath, and I will wait to feel a tingle somewhere in my body, and acknowledge that that is God. And this is sitting in traffic and feeling murderous rage at somebody who just <laughs> cut me off. Um, like this is my practice of forgiveness begins with connecting with God. And I sit in a lot of traffic, and my practice of forgiveness is sitting in traffic. That I'm able to contain my frustration and my anger really by just recognizing that at this moment, if I focus on the bottom of my foot, I can feel a tingle in my foot. And I will not feel it until I start to think about it. And when I think about it, that allows for some time for God to come in. But it really is that when my foot is falling asleep, when my, you know, if I'm staying still too long and my hands are falling asleep or something is, is tingling in me, it's, it's God waking me up. It's God reminding me that here I am. Um, and it, it really has become that simple to just acknowledge a sensation somewhere in my body and recognize that that is God. Thank you. Um, can you talk about sponsoring and being sponsored? How do you, how that works for you? I call my sponsor, okay, sponsoring and being sponsored. I call my sponsor um, three times a week, and she leaves it open to, to, for more contact. Um, so we do connect regularly. Um, there have been times where I've disappeared on my sponsor here and there. Um, when I chose my sponsor, my sponsor is, um, she's someone who really, what she had that I wanted was this sense of peace and serenity that when she shared vulnerably about things that were happening in her life, those were the things that I used to eat over and she was able to maintain this, this grace about her. Um, 
so the relationship that we have is really more about constantly coming back to where is God it's not really at all about the food unless I make it about the food and I make it about the food when I am not wanting to look at God um, so when I talk to my sponsor my sponsor is able to bring me back to my higher power um, my sponsee is someone who's been in the rooms for a, a number of years and I work the program with him the way my sponsor worked it with me it's not about his meal plan it's not about um, it's not about all of the external things about you know the job or the relationship or those things that he believes like I once believed is going to fix him um, we don't talk about those issues it always comes back to the steps and it always comes back to my higher power well his higher power Crushing loneliness. Um, <laughs> it it comes only because my my standard of what I'll allow into my life has gotten much higher. Like my who who I spend time with and who I surround myself with is not what it used to be. There was a time where. I just didn't want to be alone. I just didn't want to be alone. And it's always easier to find abusive people to hang out with. Um, because the loving people, again, I don't know how to deal with people who love me, so I push them away. And then I find people who will uh, use me for something and I bring them in. Um, I don't bring those people in anymore. I don't talk to those people anymore. Um, and the crushing loneliness today has allowed me to have an appreciation for the people who are willing to have me in their life um, I'm able to I have I just have a, a deep appreciation for the people that I'm able to pick up and, and make an outreach call to today um, that I didn't have before I I was I just didn't know how to I didn't know how to be I didn't know how to be a friend to anybody, literally. And I'm still learning how to do that. I don't know. How, I'm not great at it. I'm not like, a, like, don't think, oh, I should call him. He sounds like a great guy. I am not a great guy. I am hard to get to know because I am so deathly afraid of people. Um, but the loneliness pops up only because I love myself enough to not run away from the loneliness and into an abusive relationship where I don't feel seen or heard or cared about and the loneliness is it's never once been as bad as it was um, before coming into the rooms I just setting foot into a, into the rooms or even on a on a, a phone meeting and hearing that I'm not alone whether I am seen or heard uh, whether I walk in late and run out early, um, I never feel alone.
Yeah. Sounds weird. I work the steps out of the, uh, the, the workbook. It's really more of a, do I work the steps like everyone else? Yes. Or do I work the steps the way, like big book style, one out of the workbook, one out the way uh, someone might, the way they traditionally did, where I'll go over my day um, or go over a situation and acknowledge that I am powerless, uh, my life's unmanageable, I believe that I could be restored to sanity. I will walk through them constantly. I was taught... um, from someone in another program, you work them fast and you work them often. So how it would look, I might make an outreach call to a fellow and go through each one until I hit my block. And my block always starts with, I just don't believe God is restoring me to sanity. Or there's an ego that says, I need to be so much further along. And to walk through that and to run up against my resentments and my, uh, my character defects on a daily, well, weekly, sometimes daily basis um, is really how I, I work the steps. But I, I, I would say that I do traditionally work the steps. I do turn my steps over to my sponsor. Uh, I do work the steps around issues with my fellows. Um, it's not a, oh yeah, I heard about those steps, yeah. I, I actually like really work the steps, but I, I allow them to work me in that um, I don't use the steps to skate around a problem. I usually run right into the problem and then I'm stuck having to work. You know, the steps are working me. Um, but I, I don't want to sound like I don't... Um, like really, really work the steps. I put a lot of effort into the steps. Um, and to a certain extent, also the, the traditions. That's my time. Thank you so much for letting me say.